Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting digital. Now, let's tune in to the message for today. As Greg said, we're starting a brand new series today, and I think it's uh, kind of cool that as we're starting this series on words, that we're helping children uh, have a greater vocabulary by providing books. And many of you bought books from kindergarten to sixth grade, everything from first grade reader to chapter books, and you drop those off in the foyer today. You have an opportunity to do that for the next two weeks as well, because we're giving those books to schools in low-income areas where they don't have enough books to send books home with the kids so that the kids can learn to read with their parents. You know, we, well, here's what we know. We know that uh, by the time an average child is four years old, they have 5,000 words in the vocabulary. By the time they reach age eight, they have 10,000 words in their vocabulary. And by the time that the average American becomes an adult, they have 40,000 uh, words in their passive vocabulary, uh, about 20,000 in their active vocabulary that they would use on a regular basis. Although it's interesting, about 80% of the time we only use 3,000 of those words. And then in terms of the, the frequency in which we talk, there was a study that was done back in 2015 at the University of Maryland that says that men speak 7,000 words a day. Women speak 20,000 words a day. And because I'm a man, that's all I'm gonna say about that because I don't wanna talk about it, all right? Now here's what we do know. Every word does not carry the same power to change, to transform. And so what we're gonna do in these next few weeks is we're gonna pull out just seven words that we believe could change your life. And more important than that, we're gonna look in God's word to see what God's word says about these words. I think it's going to be a fun time together. If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's cool. On the back of your worship guide is the scripture that we're going to look at today, or you'll also see it on the screen here just in a moment. So the scripture that we want to look at is, is actually from what they call the Beatitudes, which was a part of a larger uh, portion of literature called the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know about you, but when I look in the Bible, every single word's important to me, but there are some words that kind of jump out a little bit more, and they're in red in my Bible. They're the words of Jesus Christ, and these are the words of Christ. Here's what he said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then finally, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the word that we want to look at today is the word sorry. It's the word that some of us have not used very much in recent years. 
but it's a very important word, and it's a word that if we use it and use it correctly and understand it, could change our lives. Somebody once said that the hardest two words in the English language to say are the words, I'm sorry. And they do seem to get caught in our throat, don't they? But I think there, there, there's actually two words that are harder to say than I'm sorry, and those are the words, Jesus Christ. I discovered that when I was a high school student and I got excited about my faith. Just try to say those words in the group you run with. That will kill a party real quick, all right? It really will. But I do believe that after the words Jesus Christ, there are, those probably are the two hardest words for us to say. To admit guilt, to say that we're mournful about that which we have done wrong. Now, here's what's interesting about this particular passage. It uses the word blessed over and over again. And it's an interesting word. Some people translate that word happy. In other words, happy are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of God. Happy are those who mourn or are sorry, for they shall be comforted. Now, I think happy is a good translation, but it's not a great translation because the word means much more than happy, how we feel. The word literally is the word that is used when the Bible tells us that Jesus was teaching this very passage on the side of a mountain and when it came noontime, there were a lot of people who wanted to stay and keep hearing Jesus, but they were hungry. And the disciples were having a discussion about the fact that they didn't have anywhere to buy enough food to feed that many people, multiple thousands. And so Jesus suggested that they go out and see what was available in the crowd. And there was a little boy, you know the story, who had five small barley loaves and two sardines. And he offered that little lunch up to Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus took that lunch and he blessed it. Now when Jesus blesses anything, that which is not enough becomes more than enough. That which is ordinary becomes extraordinary. The Bible tells us that after he blessed that little lunch, there was enough food to feed the thousands of people that were there, all of their families, and that there were food left over. Here's my question for you today. Do you want God to bless your life? Do you want God to take your not enough and make it more than enough? Do you want God to bless your marriage? Do you want God to bless your finances? Do you want God to bless everything that you do? Well, here in this passage, Jesus tells us how we can have a life that was not enough to become enough, more than enough, and a life that's ordinary to become super ordinary. Three things that he says. The first step, he says, is to be honest. Notice what it says there. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, he's not talking about material poverty here. He's talking about poor, he says very clearly, in spirit to recognize that we're sinners, to recognize that we make mistakes, that we're not everything that God wants us to be, that our life is not in alignment with his will. Blessed are the people who are poor in spirit, recognize their spiritual poverty because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, it was interesting. Jesus one time said that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to go into heaven before the religious elite of the day. Well, that was a shocking statement. How could he say that? He said that because the, those elite spiritual people of that day, the scribes and the Pharisees, had not made it to first base yet. They hadn't done the first thing you have to do to have God bless your life, and that's to acknowledge their spiritual poverty. 
Here's the truth, and we all know this. All of us are poor in spirit. He's not talking about just being poor in spirit. He's talking about the recognition of our poverty. That's how we get saved in the first place, isn't it? But it's more than just getting saved in the first place. The reality is that we all still struggle with sin. And if we'll acknowledge that, if we'll acknowledge that we're in process, that we're sinners. In Proverbs it says this, it says, pride goes before a fall. Later on, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians these words. He says, beware when you think you stand, lest you fall. I shared a couple of weeks ago that after eight years of treatment that my wife was finally released from all of her medical treatments related to cancer, and it caused us to think back on that journey. And that journey of health, which was such a long journey, but we're so glad that we took that journey, it began with the acknowledgement that something was wrong. And it's so easy when, when you feel that lump or you have that pain to ignore it, to just to push it away. But when you acknowledge that something could be wrong, and that's not an easy thing to embrace, but once you do that, that begins the journey of healing. That begins the journey to life. But it's not until we recognize in order to get healthy, we have to get real. But notice the second step here. The second step is Sorrow, he says there in verse four, blessed or blessed are those who mourn, who are sorrowful, for they shall be comforted. Now some people look at this verse and they'll pull it out of context, out of the scripture, and they say, well, what it's saying is whenever we have a loss in our life, when we lose a loved one, or we lose our health, or we have a financial loss, that as we're mourning that loss, God will meet us there and he will comfort us in that loss. Now, everything I just said is true. It's just that this verse doesn't say that. I can show you some other scripture in the Bible that says when you have a loss in your life that God's going to comfort you. But that's not what this is saying. And the context is here. It's talking about mourning about your poverty in spirit. When you admit, step one, that you have a problem and you are sorrowful about that. You mourn over that. And you're mourning not the fact that you violated a rule. You're mourning not that you somehow uh, didn't keep a creed. It's a mourning about a ruptured relationship. All of us know the story of the prodigal son who thought he was smarter than his dad and he went into a far country and he lived his life the way he wanted to live it and he found himself with pigs. The Bible says that he came to himself. He realized his own poverty because of his choices. And then he came home. And when he came home, notice what he said. He said, Father, I have sinned against you. And I have sinned against God. He understand that it wasn't what he did. He didn't confess all the little different activities that he was involved in. His father could probably figure that out. But instead, he confessed the heart of it, which was a ruptured relationship. And the Bible says if God's ever going to bless our lives, if he's going to take our not enough and make it more than enough, that we not only have to admit that we have a problem, but we must have a sorrow, a deep sorrow about the relationship that has been ruptured and where we are. See, the thing is, is that this lusting and this gossip and this anger and this materialism and this pride is about being in a far country and the path back from that far country is sorrow. 
In Romans, the seventh chapter, in verse 19, Paul, even though he's a follower of Jesus Christ, admits his ongoing struggle when he says, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. He was honest and he was remorseful about his state of affairs. Now, when it comes to uh, being sorrowful, we can do three things. We have three choices. One thing we can do is we can deny our sorrow. The other wrong choice is we can dwell on our sorrow. Dwell does not start with a B. <laughs> dwell on our sorrow. Or our third choice is we can deal with the sorrow. Well, a lot of people start there. They, they decide they're just going to ignore. They, they, they have a sense. They can't ignore the fact that their life is out of alignment with God. But they try to deny it. And, and they deny it in several ways. One way is to rationalize. Uh, we have no shortage of creative ability when it comes to rationalizing our own sin. Do we not? And sometimes we don't rationalize. Sometimes we excuse our sin. We said, well, yes, I did that, but you know, I, I had a bad upbringing, or my parents did this to me, or this other person did to them, this to me. And we, we find excuses for that. Other times we compare. We say, well, yeah, I did that, but I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. And here's the reality, guys. Everybody in the world can find somebody who's a worse sinner than they are, except one lousy person on the bottom, right? And so that's an easy, ready way to deny. Another way we deny is that we medicate that sorrow. In other words, instead of embracing the sorrow and living in that sorrow and letting that sorrow do the work that it needs to do, what we do is we medicate it. We might medicate it with shopping. We might medicate it with achieving. We might medicate it with drugs or alcohol or illicit sex, but we, we try to cover up the pain of our sorrow of being out of alignment with our Creator by medicating, and the only problem with that particular strategy is that many times what will happen is the medication will actually create a new pain that's greater than the original pain that we're trying to medicate. But the second thing we can do, instead of deny, we can dwell. We can get stuck in our sorrow. Paul started the church at Corinth. And he was there for about a year and a half. And then five years later, he sends them a letter. And his letter is a confrontation because he hears that there are things going on in the church that he started that shouldn't be going on in a church. And he gets all over them. He gets in their face. And then he gets word that they're really bummed out about the fact, A, that he found out about it, then B, that he addressed it. And he writes back to them and he says, you know, I heard that you're, you're, you're kind of sad about my confrontation. And he, and he basically says, I'm not, I'm not really sorry that you're sad. I'm not sorrowful about your sorryful. <laughs> but he warns them that they're not to get stuck there. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Don't miss that. It produces a repentance, change of direction without regret, where you're not looking back all the time, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And the thing that we've got to be careful about is that when we admit our, our, our sin, when we're honest about it, and when we're sorrowful because of the rupture in the relationship, we can't get stuck there. Because if we get stuck there, that doesn't help anybody. Uh, it's always good to throw in a good baseball analogy. 
And so it's like the goal is to win, right? The goal is to come home because that's when you get points and that's when your team wins. First base is to be honest about what's really going on in your life. Second base is sorrowful, to be sorry for the relationship that has been ruptured. But here's my question. Do you win games if you get 20 people onto second base? No. The, the goal is not to get to second base and to stay there and, and somehow to try to self-punish ourselves for what we've done or, 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 or feel bad enough that we kind of create a defense mechanism so maybe we don't do it again. You don't win a game by getting folks to second. In fact, there's a little statistics left on base. When you come to the end of an inning and how many guys are still on base and didn't come home, it's not a good statistic. You don't want that to be high. What God wants us to do, God wants us to go to second because you can't get home without going to second, but he didn't want, want you to stay there. He wants you to just be there long enough to touch the base. He wants you to move to the third step, which is to obey. And by the way, the third base coach is the Holy Spirit who when he sees that you have made it to second <laughs> is motioning you on. Do not stay there. We don't win if you stay there. You've done that. Come on over and get to obey because here's what happens. It says, blessed are the meek. Now, watch out with this word meek. Some of you will even have translations that says, blessed are the gentle. Listen, the word meek, the original word is the word that was used for the bit in a horse's mouth. So here's this mighty animal, this stallion who's being now controlled by this little bit in its mouth. And what this is really about, this is really about obeying God. Blessed are those who are meek before God. Those who say, I, you are God and I'm not. And I got myself in the trouble that I got to that I'm feeling the sorrow that I'm feeling today because I didn't allow you to control. And then God, when he is given control, does what only God can do. He gets us home. Don't, don't miss us, my friends. God wants us to be in sorrow and let sorrow do its work. He doesn't want us to medicate our sorrow so that we just, or he doesn't want us to live in our sorrow. What he wants the sorrow to do, what does he say there in 2 Corinthians? He says, a sorrow that leads to repentance. That's what obedience is. It's repentance. The word re repent literally means you're going in one direction. The word repent means that you turn and you go in a different direction. You had a life that was in the direction of self-control and you admitted that you were going the wrong place. You were living in, embracing the sorrow, the pain, and the pain is great enough to cause you to turn around and to go God's way. And that's when obedience takes place. That's when meekness before God takes place. When we let sorrow do its work. Don't miss this, my friends. You know, we, we talk about Jesus having joy, and he did. In fact, in Galatians, the fifth chapter, when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and it has those nine characteristics, that, that's the characteristics of Jesus Christ as he's being formed in us. Part of that is joy. It says love, joy. And Jesus uh, had great joy. You can see it as you read the pages of the New Testament. Jesus had a great sense of humor. Uh, when, when you look at some of the things that he said and the way he said them and things that he did, uh, there he is playing with the children. They're trying to get him to, to be with the high and mighty. And he's playing, laughing with the kids. And 
Jesus is a person of joy, but he's also a person of sorrow. He's described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Well, how does, how does that fit together? The Bible tells us that when Jesus came to the graveside of his friend Lazarus, that he stood there and he pondered what was happening and why death had come in this fallen world. And, the, and we have the shortest verse in the Bible. It says that Jesus wept. And Jesus cried that day because he saw what sin does. Represented in a physical death. He realized that he was about to resurrect Lazarus, but he was mourning because he knew that Lazarus would die again because that's what happens in this fallen world because of sin. Death is a part of the human experience. The Bible tells us that Jesus stood there on the Mount of Olives and he looked over the city, the panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem. And the Bible said he wept over the city of Jerusalem. And, and the reason that Jesus wept is because he knew what was going on in those homes. He knew what was going on in those marriages and with those kids. He knew what was happening in those streets. And he wept about it. Guys, there's a lot of talk today about us getting connected to the joy of our salvation. And we ought to. But friends, understand this. We also need to have balance in our life from time to time, we need to connect to the sorrow of our sin. Because if we don't, we take sin too lightly. If we don't, we continue in a path that is a path that leads to death. It's only as we are honest about our sin. And then if we're honest, as painful as that is, to be sorrowful about our sin, that then we can move to a better life, motivated by that sorrow and our love for him, to obey him. And then and only then can God bless our life. Now, I contemplated why we don't do this more than we do. And for some reason, my mind was brought to the famous chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. And you know how that chapter ends. It says, there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I thought to myself, that's it. <clears throat> when we put our faith in what Christ did for us on the cross, it gives us the freedom it gives us the freedom to admit our sins. Otherwise, we would never admit our sin because we would be condemned. But when we put our faith in what he did, it allows us to be honest. And, and then it says hope. I don't know about you guys, but every once in a while I get up and I look in the mirror and I see the person in the mirror and I think about what I've done the last 24 hours and I don't like what I see. But because of Jesus, there is hope that there will come a day when all sin is done away with, and you and I will not struggle with sin anymore, and God will finish what he has started in us. I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? And then there's love. And the love that God proved to us by sending Jesus allows me to move out of my sorrow and into obedience because I know that he comforts me in my sorrow. You see, I don't move from second base to third base. Jesus himself comes out of the dugout. He comes where I'm at. He's incarnate. And he moves me to third base. I can't obey him in my own strength, but I can obey him if Jesus and I are walking together. It's faith 
It's hope that there's a better day and there's love. Now let me stop right now and just say that when some of you saw the word we were looking at today, you thought I was gonna go a different direction than I have gone today. You thought I was gonna talk about you saying I'm sorry to people you live with or you do business with that are in your neighborhood and you were very relieved when I went the direction that I went. So now let me upset you and make you a little miserable. Okay, can I do that? It is only because we are experiencing sorrow in our relationship with Christ that it gives us the freedom to experience sorrow in our other relationships. You see, when I'm in a conflict at home, when I'm in a conflict at church or in business or in my community or in this world, the hardest thing to do is to admit where I'm wrong. But you see, when I have faith that God's gonna provide for me that which no person can provide for me, no business arrangement, no neighbor can provide for me, it gives me the freedom to own my part of the problem. And I don't have to win the argument and I don't have to be proven right because my faith is not in myself or being right or winning. It's my faith in God that allows me to own my part of the problem. And it is hope. Oh my goodness, we have hope in Christ. That because Jesus is a part of the equation of my everyday life that this marriage can get better. That my parenting can succeed that my relationship with my neighbor can be resolved if both of us will turn to the Lord. And, and I'm not gonna give up because I'll never lose hope in Christ. And then love, love is where I take all the grace that God has poured out on me and I pour out just a little bit with the person that I'm in conflict with. You see, we went the direction we went today because if you do not have faith, hope, and love in your relationship with Christ, you'll never be able to have faith hope and love in your marriage, in your parenting, in your business dealings, in the church or in the community. It is that freedom that he gives us. It is that more than enough that he provides that allows us to say the words that some in this room and online haven't said in a very long time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This last week, I got a phone call from the sheriff of our county. Now, he left a message. It kind of makes you a little nervous when the sheriff calls and says, please call me back. I have some information for you. But I felt a little bit better because he's a member of our church. He usually sits over in this section over here. And when I called him back, I found out he was on his way to a sheriff's convention, and he was driving through a little town called View, Texas, and he saw the church, where it was the very first church that I ever pastored. And he just wanted to let me know that. And so my mind, after I got relieved, my mind started going back to those early days. I remember as a, a, a freshman in college, I came to be pastor of that little church, little building seated about 100 people. Uh, on a good day, we have 87 there. And I remember that the first thing I did as a pastor is I went and I visited every single person who was a member of that church. I suggested that to Josh, by the way, all right? <laughs> it worked for me, I figured it would be helpful to him. So I went and went to, visited the Drummond family first, and then I went to visit one of the Richards brothers, and then I went to visit another Richards brothers, and another, there were 10 brothers in the church. And as, after I visited all the Richards, I went to visit a widow, 
and found out after visiting with her that she had a son, a rebellious son, who dropped out of school and was causing all kinds of trouble in the area. And I kept going back to that house to try to meet him, but he would always see me coming and escape out the back road. And then one day I got a call from Gary. Gary had been arrested for stealing oil fill pipe, and he wanted to know if I could help him. And so the very first time I went to Taylor County Jail, first time I'd been in a county jail, and I still remember those painted concrete floors and the metal little cubicle that you'd go in with a thick glass and you'd pick up a telephone to talk to the person on the other side. And Gary was so sorry for what he'd done. He was so sorry that he embarrassed his mom. He was so sorry that uh, he didn't do what God wanted to do and he was saying, if I can just get out of here, I'm coming back to church. And he just went on and on and on. Well, it just so happens that the, the farmer who uh, he stole the oil field pipe from that had stored on his property uh, dropped the charges, and th- there were no charges. And so I, I look forward to seeing Gary in church the next week. This is my first pastorate, okay? <laughs> One week, two weeks, three weeks, no Gary. In fact, I, I just kind of forgot about it until I got a phone call from him about four months later, and he had been arrested for selling marijuana to an undercover agent. And this time, he didn't call me before the trial. He, he had already been convicted, but he was calling me to see if I would be a character witness for him. <laughs> I said, Gary, that's a little, little problem because you know, last time I talked to you was through a glass for you stealing pipe, and I don't think you want me to share that story. But I did go to the trial, and I sat on the row behind him. And uh, every once in a while, when we'd have a break in the proceedings, he'd turn around and he'd tell me about how sorry he was. I was sorry that he embarrassed his mom and he was sorry that he broke the law and he was sorry that he wasn't living the way and he kept talking about how he's gonna come back to church and I'm gonna be there, pastor. Well, because it was his first conviction, he got a probated sentence and so I was looking forward to seeing him in church. <laughs> One week, two weeks, three, four, five, six weeks and finally Gary came to church. The back two doors opened up and they rolled Gary's casket down the middle aisle. And the first time I saw Gary in church was when I preached his funeral. He'd gotten drunk and he didn't want to be caught by the police in that condition and so he ran from the police and he ran his car into an oak tree and was killed immediately. Here's the problem with Gary's sorrow. It was a sorrow that that led to death because it wasn't a godly sorrow. It wasn't a godly. See, here's the problem. Gary thought God was mad at him. Gary thought that God would never forgive him. Gary was dead wrong. Today, we can mourn. We can be sorrowful. We can fully embrace our wrongdoings because there is a God who will meet us there and he will walk with us and bless us. Let's thank him for that. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. And I pray this, dear Father, not only that we would be recipients of that grace, but I pray, dear Father, that we would pour that same grace out on others. That we would create the kinds of homes where people can say, I'm sorry, because they know that they're going to be forgiven. That they're going to be comforted. They're not going to be Uh, punished in a vindictive way or to try to manipulate 
I thank you, dear Father, that you've created this wonderful spiritual ecosystem that's permeated by grace. I pray, dear Father, that we would create those same ecosystems in our church, in our community, in our homes, and in our marriages, where people can have faith in you, where people can hope that things can get better, and that where love covers a multitude of sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital.